Hello, this is Tom McSweeney and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. The Maritime Ireland radio show is all about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development, which are so important to this island nation, where the connection with the sea is as old as time itself, a fundamental part of Ireland socially and economically. The Maritime Ireland radio show is an audio marine journal, bringing together an island people in the community of the sea, broadcast on 18 community radio stations around Ireland and on Apple, Spotify and Mixcloud podcasts. And our community of listeners is expanding. Mark Norman in Honolulu informed us and his followers on Facebook that while on his boat in harbour on a morning, which he described as reminiscent of Ireland, with 25 knots of Kona wind, as it's called there, coming from the southwest with plenty of rain, making it so reminiscent of Ireland, that he listened to the Maritime Ireland podcast and baked a batch of fruit scones to warm up the cabin. Glad you're enjoying the programme, Mark, and I'm sure the fruit scones tasted well. And we have a query from a maritime historian in Hungary about the restoration of Cork Harbour One design yachts, which we reported, and who thinks he may have found a possibly similar boat, and he'd like help in identifying it, which we'll do our best to give him. The reach of radio is wonderful. In our voyage on this edition, we'll hear two men tell their amazing survival stories from disaster at sea. One as a child, rescued from a sinking passenger ferry. The other alone in the vastness of a storm-tossed ocean. Then I had the decision whether to stay with my vessel and try and get it to shore, which was still a little over you know, two and a half thousand miles away, with damaged steering, no engine. So I'd managed to set up a jury rig, but I'd no, um, no mast. You know, I take the rescue that's on hand being offered to me. So I took the unfortunate decision, but probably the sensible one, to abandon my vessel and leave it. Not the easiest thing to do. A sailor never considers his boat as an inanimate object. Abandoning it to its fate is never easy, as Dublin sailor Gregor McGuckin recalls there from his experience in the storm-tossed Indian Ocean. And we have the amazing story of a child rescued from the debris of a sinking passenger ship told by that child, now the man honouring the sailor who saved his life. That man's actions were totally selfless. In a very dangerous situation, he knew what he was doing, the risk, but he still took it. Patrick Murphy from Wales, as a child rescued in 1940 wartime from the sinking of the city of Cork steam packet companies in his father. In our last programme, we enjoyed a musical journey around five oceans composed by Dan Fitzpatrick of Bad Hands, amongst whose inspiration for his composition was Dublin's solo sailor, trying to race around the world non-stop and alone in the Golden Globe race only done by older yachts in 2018, Gregor McGauchan, and it's done without modern technology. He was third in the race at the time and in a remote part of the southwestern Indian Ocean when a storm dismasted and damaged his yacht. Despite the damage, Gregor set out to rescue a fellow competitor whose yacht had also been damaged and who'd been seriously injured. 
We've had several requests to know what Gregor has been doing since. Well, he's now working in the Malahide Marina in County Dublin, from where he joins me. At the moment, I've, I've gone to the other side. I'm now working in, a, in the marina at Malahide, Dublin. Um, so I'm, I'm working out there, sort of looking after other people's boats as opposed to what I used to do, which was uh, sort of delivering delivering boats and around the place and managing boats. So before I went and did my the big the big uh, trip, so I've gone to the other side. <laughs> but you're still obviously a huge interest in boats and boating and sailing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a you can't get it out of once it's once it's in your system. It's very hard to get it out. <laughs> What's happened to Hanley Energy Endurance? I had to abandon that vessel down in the South Indian Ocean after a big storm. Um, so I, I lost my mast. I was trying trying to sail around the world with um, 1960s technology kind of thing. And then, uh, so I was about three months into it and I got caught in a big storm in the Southern Indian Ocean and lost my masts. Um, so then I there was an, another guy in the storm, uh, same storm as me, who lost his masts. But unfortunately, he quite severely injured his back and um, so there was a, a, a sort of multinational search and rescue operation put in place to to rescue him and I was reasonably close by so I was trying to see if I could get to him but sure without any any masts and I couldn't get my engine going it was uh, quite difficult so when, when this happened I was about 100 miles away which is sounds a lot but it's extremely close by when you're three or four thousand kilometers away from land uh, it took me three days to get about 25 miles away from him before um, a fishing support vessel came and picked him up. And then I had the decision whether to stay with my vessel and try and get it to shore, which was still a little over you know, two and a half thousand miles away um, with damaged steering, no engine and um, limited. So I'd managed to set up a jury rig, but I'd no, um, no masts or, you know, do I have the, or take the rescue that's on hand there being offered to me so I took the unfortunate decision but probably the sensible one to abandon my vessel and, and leave it so then it kind of I wasn't allowed to, generally the procedure when you're doing that is you scuttle your vessel so it's not a, a danger to navigation but we were quite close to um, Ile Amsterdam, which is a little French island in the South Indian Ocean and it's a protected area and the vessel that picked us up was a, uh, a fishing patrol vessel They're the only vessel down there that patrols these sort of tens of thousands of square miles of, of water down there to look out for sort of illegal fishing vessels and they check in on the islands. And this one was a, it's a conservation area. So they told me no uncertain terms that they would prosecute me if I sank my vessel in those waters because it was a conservation area. So she was left afloat where she bobbed around for uh, a good while. I got reports of, of sightings every now and again. I'd, I'd left uh, sort of the lights on um, the navigation lights, that is, and um, a sort of a an AIS, like an identification transponder, which basically will ping ping the vessel's location to you know, um, vessels in the immediate vicinity. We're talking sort of a mile or two. So I did what I could before I left, but uh, so I got reports um, periodically, once every three or four months of, of our location. Up until the last one I got was. Just, just, uh, just under a year ago, actually, and um, I got contacted by the La Reunion Search and Rescue, uh, the Marine Coordination Centre there, and they had picked up my vessel about 400 miles off the coast, so they travelled about 2,000 miles at this point, and um, then they they tasked the fishing vessel to go down and uh, check on it, and the fishing vessel. Uh, Boarded, uh, boarded it, and we presume that it, um, they scuttled the vessel and 
probably took a few bits and there was a barrel of whiskey on it so they took the barrel of whiskey off it as well a small a small barrel now but that would be, that had been very kindly um, given by uh, as part of a sponsorship deal I had with Glendalock Distillery the whiskey there so it's Glendalock uh, <laughs> seven year whiskey in it and um, the idea was we'd sail it around the world give it a bit of a story and then uh, crack it open and bottle it at the end but unfortunately it didn't make it back she was certainly well named as Energy Hanley Energy Endurance. Yes, she was that, yeah. Uh, named after um, Erna Shackleton's vessel, the Endurance. One of the other questions from listeners, which they asked me to put to you, Gregor, has it changed your approach towards the sea and sailing? Because that sounds a fairly horrendous experience. People ask me, sort of often say what a sort of nasty experience it was, but Overall, I was away for about three months, and probably 99.9% of it was extremely enjoyable and quite pleasant. Oh, there was tough times and everything, and um, yeah, it was a tough experience, but it certainly hasn't put me off. Or, you know, it, it, when you're that long at sea, you sort of you, you generate a great respect for the sea. You have a lot of time to kind of kind of get really involved in your environment. Obviously, especially especially alone, you don't have um, you know other people kind of. To, to talk to her or anything like that, you know, well, I was talking to the other competitors and, and so on via radio, but, um, you know, you do have a lot of time to kind of take in your environment. So, um, I suppose I, it certainly helped me develop my respect for the, the sea and the people who choose to spend a lot of time in it. And especially, especially, you know, the earlier explorers going into, you know, the idea was I was doing it with 1960 technology, but what, what I was, wasn't doing it with was, was the knowledge they have in the 1960s. We had, you know, it was 21st century knowledge and, and drawing from all the experience of all the people who've done it in the meantime. You know, when the guys first decided to sail solo without stopping around the world in the 60s, you know, nobody had done it before. They, they didn't know what they were getting into. So, you know, this this time we had a, a wealth of information, still very limited, still very few people have actually done it, but a wealth of information compared to what they had. So, um, but it certainly helps you kind of realize how amazing what an amazing feat these people before before your attempt to have you know what they did so any future sailing plans in the short term probably not but uh i would say in the the longer term most definitely how long i don't know but it's uh getting you know the, the actual race itself was was the easy part it was getting to the start line was was that was a difficult bit to be honest that was sort of three years in the the guts of three years in the making and it was very stressful and difficult and um, it was right up until the last minute. I mean, Hanley Energy, who were my main sponsor, um, they, we didn't kind of make contact with them until just a bit over a month before the start. So it was, you know, if they hadn't come on board, the whole the whole campaign would have collapsed and uh, I wouldn't have made it. So you can imagine the financial stress and pressure that was under 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 the whole team just to just to get to that. So <laughs> it hasn't put you off sailing anyway, Gregor. And you oh, you, you were well, but perhaps not another round the world race. Oh well, ideally, I would love to do another round the world race, but unfortunately, I now know what it takes to get to the start line in one of these races. So <laughs> that's a, that's a bit of a disadvantage now. So um, and I've a I've a a, a, a baby on the way now with my partner as well so that might have to press pause on things for a little bit longer that too just like your decision to take the risk you offered in the indian ocean seems very sensible gregor thanks for telling your story
and well-deserved congratulations for the accolades you've received for your own rescue attempt, amongst which is the Cruising Club of America's Award Seamanship Trophy, not easily earned and well-deserved. Also in sailing, another well-deserved award to an Irish sailor, Tom Dolan from County Meath, who was on the programme a few weeks back from his base in France, where he's known as the Flying Irishman. He's been named Irish Sailing's Sailor of the Year, chosen in association with readers of Afloat, the National Maritime website. He was the top non-Frenchman in the French Figaro solo sailing race last year, and that takes some doing. In our last programme and podcast, I also mentioned the big interest in shipwrecks, and I've been reading since then David Meeran's book, The Shipwreck Hunter, about his lifetime career, during which he found many famous shipwrecks. Ireland, Corkport and the Geological Survey Office feature in a number of them. One is the Derbyshire discovery, which had gone undiscovered for 14 years after she disappeared with all 44 people aboard during Typhoon Orchid in September of 1980, 670 nautical miles from Japan to where she was heading. She was a sister ship of the Kowloon Bridge, which went to ground and sank on the Stags Rocks in West Cork in very rough sea conditions in December of 1986, causing a lot of pollution, but there were no deaths. The Kowloon Bridge and the Derbyshire were linked by allegations of faulty shipbuilding, particularly around the deck frames, which is discussed in the book. David Mearns and his team used Corkport as an operational base during their successful search for the shipwrecks of the famous battleships HMS Hood of the British Royal Navy and the German Navy's Bismarck in 2001 in the Bay of Biscay. And that was 60 years after the ships had fought an epic sea battle in May 1941. A total of 3,546 sailors died in those vessels. And the Geological Survey of Ireland office gets credit for helping him locate the first shipping casualty of World War II, the passenger vessel Athenia, which was sunk by a German submarine on the day war was declared, the 3rd of September 1939. 112 were killed. Now to an amazing story of survival, that of a child carried to safety through the debris of a sinking ship inside a sailor's coat, after other rescuers had got his mother safely off the ship but hadn't seen the child, who was caught by debris under a bunk. Patrick Murphy lives in Wales and is probably the last living survivor of the sinking of the City of Cork steam packet companies in Fallon, which hit a mine in the River Mersey as it left Liverpool just before Christmas in 1940 during World War II. His story came to light when he couldn't get to Dublin to lay a wreath on the National Seafarers Memorial at City Quay on the 80th anniversary of the sinking in memory of the four Irish seamen who died in that sinking and as a tribute to the sailor who saved him. COVID-19 restrictions prevented his journey, so he wrote to the National Maritime Museum and they stepped in to do it for him. Patrick has been telling his story to Justin Marr. Preceded by a shower of flares, German bombers rained fire and high-explosive bombs in their most savage attack on London. Here again is the blood, the sweat and tears 
that Nazi warfare brings to the men, women and children of city, town and village. During the height of the German Blitz on Britain during World War II, the Irish merchant vessel Innisfallen was sailing the route to Dublin from Liverpool. On the afternoon of the 21st of December 1940, she struck a magnetic mine that had been dropped by the Luftwaffe as she made her way down the River Mersey. She would sink in 45 minutes. At two and a half, obviously, I don't have a detailed awareness of the disaster, but I do have very clear memories, almost like um, disjointed camera slides. They're in sharp focus, but there's no soundtrack at all with them. Patrick Murphy was a toddler, travelling with his mother aboard the Innisfallen on the day she sank. My mother and I were to sail from Liverpool to spend Christmas on the family farm near Monabi, Mallow, County Cork. And one of the bright memories I have of it is hugging my early Christmas present, uh, Danny. It was a huge cowboy doll that my mother had made for me. On board, we were travelling third class and we were sharing a cabin at the stern end of the ship with two women teachers. Two men rushed into the cabin to save the women and they pulled my mother out screaming onto the deck to get into the lifeboat. Finally, she got them to understand that her distress was not the explosion, it was because her child was still stuck back there. What had happened was I'd been thrown out of the bunk and was hidden under the debris. But a brave young chap immediately returned to the cabin, even though the ship was sinking fast. He found me in the dimness, and I remember him picking me up and pushing me down inside his greatcoat. And only my head was sticking out as he crawled on his hands and knees with me slung beneath him. The lapels on his blue-grey greatcoat were large on each side of me. It's a strange image, that, but it's one that stuck with me for 80 years. Patrick never saw the face of his rescuer. And to this day, he has never been able to identify him. During the war, my father tried to find out. And uh, of course, during the war, finding out information on shipping was never very easy. We didn't find anything out at all about him. And then many years later, we realized perhaps we'd been looking in the wrong place because We'd been asking around in Liverpool, but he was an Irish seaman. But we've still not found anything about him at all. Nor, I should say on that, do I know that he was a sailor. He was a young man who was on deck at the same time as my mother was distressed. So he may not have been a sailor. I do wish I knew what he looked like, and I wish I knew who his family were and connected with him. It's a missing element in my life, and I would think I will never know. But the feeling I have about him is what is important. The memories of that night 80 years ago have stayed with Patrick all his life. A professional painter, Patrick wanted to capture his memories on canvas, but he waited to do so until the 1990s after his mother had passed away. 
She lived with us for 23 years, but she never discussed the sinking at all. It was just too painful and we suspect that she lost a baby in it, um, that she had a miscarriage as a result. So I had to wait until, until my mother had passed away and then I painted it. The man holding me in his coat is the way I remember it and the background, all the lights, that's the way I remember it. It's not just uh, an illustration, it's, I suppose, an expression of feelings in response to the situation. It put me in touch with that man. In some way, you know, I made a, I made a material object which gave me material touch to that man. Each year, Patrick has commemorated the sinking of the Innisfarman in honour of the brave man who risked everything to save his life, and in memory of the four Irish seamen who lost their lives aboard that day. For the 80th anniversary last December, he had planned to lay a wreath on the River Mersey, but COVID restrictions prevented that. However, President Emeritus of the Maritime Institute of Ireland, Richard McCormick, volunteered to lay a wreath for Patrick at the City Quay Seafarers Memorial. I never expected that to happen. That was a fulfilment in its own way of on the 80th anniversary, that on the memorial where Innisfallen is commemorated, a wreath was laid. The families of those men were real war victims. They actually lost somebody on that ship. So it was beautiful to have that wreath laid by Richard and his wife. Here we have a, a tragedy, not the greatest tragedy of the war, but in all of that, there was at least one heroic action. That man's actions were totally selfless. In a very dangerous situation, he knew what he was doing, the risk. But he still took it, with no reward for it. That man didn't come forward and say, you know, how great I am, you owe me this, you owe me that. None of that. He just did it and disappeared. It's just how wonderful people can be. And to see that in it, that the sinking was a commercial disaster, political disaster, and a bereavement for many families, but it was still a sign that there are good people. Patrick Murphy, survivor of the wartime sinking of the City of Cork Steam Packet Companies in Isfallen. And my thanks to Richard McCormack, President Emeritus of the National Maritime Museum and Institute in Dulera, who brought Patrick's story to my attention and who arranged for a wreath made by Richard's wife Mary to be laid at the National Seafarers Memorial in Dublin in memory of that sinking. Richard also tells me that Patrick is planning to look for Irish citizenship. The Marine Institute is offering bursary scholarships to undergraduates who might be interested in a maritime research career. Eight to 12 week placements are part of the scheme, which is in its 30th year. 
details are on the Institute's website, marine.ie. And the Institute is also celebrating the achievements of women in science. Also in Maritime News, John McDonough has been appointed the new Chief Executive of Waterways Ireland. He's been interim CEO there since 2019. And the glass walkway on the cliffside at Achill Island's Keem Bay is amongst proposals for development of what Mayo County Council describes as a signature discovery point, but which is being opposed by 2,000 signatories to a campaign petition counterclaiming that it will do untold damage to one of the most beautiful places in the world, Keem Bay, a place of relaxation and peaceful contemplation which are also qualities to be found in anglers whose patience on riverside, shoreside and at sea I've often admired, and which could be a good reason to get involved in angling, which your organisation wants to encourage a dozen at Miles Kelly at Fisheries Ireland. Hi Tom, thanks for having me back again. The last time I was on I was telling all your listeners that 2021 could be the year to take up angling. Well now the end of lockdown is in sight, so hopefully some of them will be taking the opportunity to get ready for their first trip to the water. It's not that you've not been allowed to go fishing for the last while, it's just that between the lockdown and the fairly miserable weather for most of January and February too, that standing around waiting for a fish to take your bait may not have been all that attractive a proposition. Now having said that, things are improving. And one of the fish that always lights up the imaginations of anglers is salmon. It is such a special place in Irish culture and heritage. The salmon season for 2021 opened back on January 1st, but we had to wait for nearly the full month before the first fish of the season was caught. This year, the first salmon of the season was caught in County Kerry on the River Lawn, and all the reports locally are that there were a few more fish caught on the flesh too. After that, the Delphi fishery opened on February 1st, and they had two fish there to mark the occasion. The Blackwater opened on the 1st of February too, but they had to wait until the 10th to get their first fish this season, a lovely £9 salmon caught on fly at Carysville. We had the odd bit of pike fishing reported too, by those lucky enough to live within 5 kilometres of a good river or lake. There were some great fish caught on the Innie River in the Midlands, and down in Cork on Lochalua, Sigila Tour from Tierna Spadoga Cottages caught a really good pike, more than 100 centimetres long. There is, of course, more to fishing than salmon and the odd pike. But with that lockdown, there aren't too many people getting out there and making most of the wonderful coarse, pike, salmon and sea fishing that is available. So there's not a whole lot to report on. But don't forget that some of the trout lakes will be open in February. And by March, there really will be a fresh complexion on things. Apart from that, over the last few weeks, We've been busy sharing some great how-tos from a variety of Irish anglers who've taken the time to create some really super fishing videos on YouTube. Join us on fishinginireland.info to find out more. So that's all from me this time, Tom. Safe fishing to all. Oh, and by the way, stay tuned to fishinginireland.info for your angling news. And don't forget, CPR saves fish. Thanks, Miles, angling advisor and website manager at the state agency Fisheries Ireland and the regular contributor to the Maritime Ireland radio show, where from this programme onwards, we're offering a Maritime Book Prize for your opinions, comment and views on any maritime matters. We'd love to hear from you. Email yours to maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. 
That's Maritime Ireland Radio Show at gmail.com. Or if you prefer to send by post, our address is CRY 104FM, Yall County Cork, from where the programme originates on the East Cork coastline. And it's broadcast on 18 community radio stations around Ireland and podcast on Apple, Spotify and Mixcloud. So you can hear us anywhere. We're broadcast in Dublin on Lear FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South. In Cork on CRY 104FM, Yall and also in Cork on UCC Radio, Bear Island Radio and West Cork FM. In Galway, Connemara Community Radio and Kinvara FM. On Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio, Kilkenny City Radio. In Mayo on Community Radio, Castle Bar and Eris FM, Bell Mullet. On Southwest Clare Radio, Radio Kirkabashkeen. West Limerick, 102 FM and Tip Midwest Radio in Tipperary. Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Mixcloud, Spotify and themarinetimes.ie. The programme website is tomaxweenymarine.ie or look us up on Maritime Ireland Radio Show. Our email address is maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. That's maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. You can sign up for the listeners' programme newsletter also. Our phone and text number is 0872 555 197. That's 0872-555-197. We'd love to hear from you. Sound supervision on the programme by Justin Maher. Until our next programme, the usual wish of fair sailing. <laughs>